0: Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the stem cell channel. Visit Uctv.tv slash stem cell. Yeah, so what I want to do in the next thirty or so minutes is is give a bit bit of background as to you know how we from the finding of a of one of the most active stem cells in the mammalian body that you see here in action in the gut, how that took us totally by chance into developing organoid technology, uh, starting from adult uh, so from primary tissues rather than from IPS cells or from ES cells. And then I'll give a few examples and also some recent work. Uh, that we have tried to, you know, to, to use organoids for various uh, applications to get that take us closer to patients and, and closer to the to the clinic. I should also stress that indeed I'm currently a Roche employee, member of the executive board. But what I'm talking about is actually the work from my lab in Utrecht, which I still supervise from a little bit of a distance. So. What you just saw was this, the stem cells in the gut in action sit in the bottom of the crypts. They produce massive amounts of daughter cells every day. Uh, Nick Barker in the lab uh, found this new marker LGR5 that, that then helped us to find the stem cells of the gut. we now know, it probably uh, marks all epithelial stem cells of a mammalian body when they are active, not when they're quiescent. Um So they they divide every day in a mouse, and that then inspired Toshisato, Sato, Toshio Sato, now a professor in Tokyo, to see if we could actually take one of these stem cells then out of a mouse. But since then, we've all translated this to humans and to patients. Can we take one stem cell and recreate the growth conditions in a crypt where they normally reside, the crypts of Liebukun, to encourage them to divide? And the intention was to make a lump of stem cells, but that's not what we got. You see, actually, the 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 three recombinant proteins that we use for mouse intestinal stem cells: wind activator, our spondin turned out to be the ligand of our marker a little bit later, epithelial growth factor, and a BMP inhibitor. No serum, still we do this in matrix gel, so in 3D, in, inspired by Mina Bissell, um, and matri gel is still magic. I don't think we have anything yet that can replace place gel. Anyway, so a single stem cell grows out, makes these structures rather than just lumps of cells. And when, when Toshi started looking carefully at what these really represent, there was a central lumen. The central lumen is lined by uh, all of the mature cell types of the gut epithelium. We probably now recognize about you know, 12 to 14 different cell types that together help us to take up uh, to digest food and take up nutrients efficiently while protecting us Against what is inside are are gut lumens, and these buds that you're sticking out turn out to be uh, sort of equivalents of crypts with with multiple stem cells. So We start from one, but we make many of these organoids, and then daughter cells that uh, that divide and move to the uh, to the center of of this lumen here. Um, Several very unexpected observations. One was, first of all, that they built these structures at all in a, in a very reproducible manner. Second, that they actually don't stop doing this. So these stem cells grew essentially forever. We now have them in culture for more than 10 years. And still every week they grow about tenfold, creating these structures, which we, now, which we then called mini-guts. We now call them intestinal organoids and as I said they they contain all of the cell types of the gut epithelium. I'll give I'll I'll discuss one of our recent projects where we uh, exploit this and even they put the cell the cell types the different cell types in the right positions of these structures. Now, they don't really look like guts, but when we line them up by growing them in, in bundled collagen gels rather than a matri gel, which is a more amorphous gel, you can see that they fuse. You see that in the top here, but then we, when, when we start from one stem cell, we have enough of these organoids lined up. Uh, we And this was done by Norman Sachs, now active in California. Actually, we can make these long tubes that really start looking like real guts. So a central lumen, that's where all the, the, the differentiated cells, when they're about five, six days old, they actually undergo the they end up in the lumen, uh, like what happens in a real gut, and then we have multiple crypts that line uh, that line the central lumen of the gut tube. And in this uh, in this epithelium, we essentially see all of the cell types. Now, one immediate exp- uh, um, one immediate uh, way of using this. An example would be to not only grow normal cells, but also grow cancer cells. We just heard about uh, cancer in patients, Uh, and we can do this side by side, so that that was then quite unique. Uh, So in the lab, we would have a sample of normal gut epithelium. You just saw a patient with colon cancer. On the right, we would have the the tumor tissue growing, and this would now allow us, first of all, to read the DNA of the tumor, but that could have been done directly on the primary tissue sample, but most importantly, we have the tumor cells in a petri dish growing probably forever, um, um, representing the tumor of an individual patient. And this can now be screened, these tumor organoids, and uh, in theory then, and then we can predict possibly by screening uh, cancer organoids what would be a good drug or drug combination or treatment regimen for an individual cancer patient. Now, this turns out to, to work well. Uh, we were not the first. We were working hard on this, but then scooped by a, a beautiful study in science 2018 that shows that if you do this carefully in well-controlled phase one and two trials, the predictive value of organoids, so, so basically the organoids are grown from patients that are already participating in trials. The organoids are exposed to the same treatment regimen that the, the patients will experience in a trial, and then we can compare the outcomes. Did the organoids predict well or did they not predict well what would happen to the patient? And in out that at least in this first uh, study, eighty-five to ninety percent correct predictions came out of just screening organoids. And then the the, the next four papers we had some involvement, but these were all clinical groups that we helped a little bit. And now there's probably about thirty or forty papers that all show that if you do this carefully, uh, it's not not very simple yet, but you actually can very well predict for both for classical chemotherapeutics, for radiation, and for targeted therapeutics. You can predict if a patient will, will not respond with very high fidelity. What this, this particular ish, uh, um, version of the test doesn't show is whether immune checkpoint inhibitors, for instance, will work because we have no immune cells in this particular version. There is actually now a number of papers where they are added, and they also score very well. And angiogenesis inhibitors, Will, of course, also not score because these tumours, as they grow in the lab, are not dependent on a on a blood circulation. So just rapidly, how we, how we now actually use these organoids, we made a, uh, a small biobank just a number of years ago from colorectal cancer patients, either the hypermutated or the MSI version or the MSS, the non-hypermutated. It's about 25 or so here. We now have biobanks of hundreds of these patients and we think we can really capture the diversity of each, each and every individual uh, malignancy by creating these large biobanks, living biobanks. In this particular initial biobank there was one patient who did not have um, any of the known mutations in the uh, EGF, EGF receptor KRAS pathway. And that was patient 18. All other patients would have a hit, an activation hit in this pathway. So we ask, you know, how, can, can we do something with it? With CRISPR, it's actually very easy to uh, make modifications in organoids. We use this extensively, and I'll give more examples a little bit later. But what uh, Hayana Ross in my lab, together with the Snippet Lab, did is they now engineered into this one tumor Sample here that did not appear to have an effect in this pathway. They they engineered in the G12D mutation in KRAS, very common in colon cancer. And then uh, they exposed, so you see or the original organoids of this particular patient that are highly sensitive to a drug combination of an EGF receptor inhibitor and a MEC inhibitor. You see how, in a very short while, all of the cells that are happily growing at the start of the experiment are dead. You see that the nuclei are now crumbling. if we do the same experiment with this very same cancer, but now we added a single base change, so there's one letter in the DNA code that's changed, activating KRAS, so now this, this cancer has an active AGF receptor KRAS pathway, and this made, makes this particular uh, organoid entirely resistant to the very same drug combination that was happily killing the cancer cells when they were still in the original state. So this, basically, this, this was a, a predicted outcome, but based on this, uh, now We, but many other labs are using patient organoids, so tumor organoids directly coming from a patient that you can actually track back to the patient to learn about drug sensitivities, drug resistances, but also maybe to help develop new drugs for these cancer patients. This is one of the two stories that uh, this one is actually not submitted yet, but I want to show you what what is feasible in organoids. What you see here is uh, human small intestinal organoids or healthy organoids. Um, QIYG and Lin Lin last year published a protocol that really optimized the growth of small intestinal organoids. And in practice, what we do, we need a tiny biopsy uh, or we need a, a, a little bit of a circular resection, but no more than a cubic millimeter it would suffice. Uh, but it needs to be Alive should not have been thrown in formaldehyde by the pathologist, which often happens. Uh, but if we get it alive, we put it in Matrigel. Actually, we 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 basically turn it into small fragments, 10-20 cells. Put it in Matrigel, add the the growth factors that for every tissue have to be optimized. But there are always variations on a theme that I just showed. Uh, and they start growing. And, and here what uh, Guiwei and Lin did is they knocked in fluorescent proteins in three different marker genes. MUC2, Mucin2, marks goblet cells. So in bright green, you see there's lots of goblet cells. Uh, they're also quite common in the, in the gut epithelium. So that's fine. The Fenton A5 marks Paneth cells. They typically sit at the base of the crypt. You actually see these dark cells here. This would be the crypt equivalent. This is the central lumen. So there are Paneth cells there, and they are orange, and then cells that have received a lot of of attention recently, the enteroendocrine cells of the gut. So there's about six cell types. They all are marked by this purple. Uh, marker here, chromogranin A uh, in this knock-in, so you see the purple cells. So one of the six cell types, I won't talk about them more, but is the L-cell, and the L-cell makes this magical GLP-1 uh, hormone that is now becoming rapidly very popular as an, as an obesity drug. So what these cells do, they essentially measure what passes by in the gut, they secrete their hormones, and then instruct the uh, the owner of that gut to start eating or to start burning calories, etc., etc. And GLP-1 is one of the about 20 hormones that these, these enteroendocrine cells make, but I, I won't talk about this anymore later in this talk. So to give a little bit of background to this, uh, this study, um, about seven or eight years ago together with two scientists in Utrecht and Holland, uh, Florijn Deckers and Jeff Beekman, um, we uh, developed a test for cystic fibrosis based in a personalized test uh, for individual patients. Now, CF patients um, have a mutant uh, CFTR gene. The mutations can be in different uh, parts of the gene. Of course, there was a drug developed by Vertex that helped about half of the patients, the most common form of CF, but many other patients had rare mutations. And that was the reason to see if you could set up a a personalized medicine test. And what the the CFTR gene encodes is a chloride channel, which can uh, be closed and open. And when it's open, it allows Allows chloride ions to pass from the top of the cell into the lumen of the organoids and when that happens water is also transported to the lumen of the organoids and this takes care that the apical domain the, the, the mucin layer, the slime layer the mucus layer that, that sits on top of the apical domain, so inside the gut inside the lungs, inside the liver etc, etc, that, 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 that mucus uh, basically doesn't become very viscous, it doesn't become very sp- sticky and if you don't have this channel, you have your cystic fibrosis patient, you cannot transport water into the lumen, and you get this extremely viscous um, viscous uh, mucus, and that gets you in trouble. Now, the assay, I won't talk about CF anymore, but the assay is simple. Here you see rectal organoids, so we take small biopsies from children. It's a painless um, uh, maneuver. In about a week, we have these organoids growing, when, they're, when they are really grown, we turn them in green and we can open the CFTR channel by adding uh, froscolin, which raises cyclic AMP, or cholera toxin, which actually naturally opens the CFTR channel. And when you do that, chloride ions will, will flow into the lumen of the organoids and at the same time, water will flow in and that's why these organoids so rapidly swell. So when they do swell, we know there is a functional CFTR channel. It also shows that cholera toxin induces water transport into the lumen of the gut and actually what it does in a real patient, it causes a massive watery diarrhea and, and that gets important a little bit later. Now, this is the, the normal response. If we now take a sample of tissue from a cystic fibrosis patient, we now have a biobank of about 800 of these patients. You can see there's very little lumen at the start in, the, in these organoids and when we now add for or cholera toxin, they don't really swell at all because they don't have the channel, the chloride channel so they cannot transport chloride ions, and they cannot transport water into the lumen. This is, by the way, the reason why uh, CF carriers are probably highly resistant to cholera toxin and also why uh, uh, CFTR mutations are so common amongst Caucasians, because medieval times in Europe, um, there were were many, many cholera epidemics. And if you would be a carrier of mutations, you would not develop... This is the mini-diarrhea, but you would not develop diarrhea, and you would actually survive more easily a cholera infection. Now, if you take these, uh, these organoids here, and we now expose them to the Vertex drug or CAMBI, wait for a few hours, and now give them cholera toxin or foscolin, the channel is restored by this, or this magical CAMBI drug, and now we restore the swelling assay. So, this is a functional assay for the CFTR channel in cystic fibrosis, but also in normals. So, keep that in mind. Now, the st- uh, is is basically uh, entirely uh, done by Dai Zhong Wang a Chinese postdoc in the lab and he noted that uh, there's many many single cell mrna studies being published on a variety of different tissues in human and mice and actually when you do this on gut epithelium of human and mouse it turns out that there is a cell type a novel cell type that humans have but mice don't have it's called the best four cell, it expresses a gene called best 4 but it also expresses a number of other genes that I'll show you. And there are many, many studies that picked up this cell type. It looks uh, very much like an enterocyte, the most common cell type. It's actually related to to an enterocyte and had not been noticed before this fantastic new technology was developed. So but this cell was only known as a gene signature, nobody has cell lines, and in mice, because they don't exist, you cannot really study them. So what the Dizong said out this is so can I actually can I see if it can create these uh, BEST4 cells in organoids? So these are the genes that are expressed by BEST4 cells in humans. CFTR is very prominently expressed. Um, it should be somewhere here. Here it is. BEST4 itself is here. It's another channel protein. There are many, many channel proteins. Um, the BEST4 cells are predicted to help balance uh, ions like chloride, sodium, potassium across the apical membrane and also water and pH, so control pH. You also note that sp- IB is a transcription factor that appears to be unique to BEST4 cells, and that also gets to be important a little bit later. So this is the BEST4 cell. So on its apical domain, it has CFTR, as you showed it, so it allows chloride ions, and then water follows. So it basically keeps water on the outside, on the luminal side of the epithelium. Also important for the story is yet another molecule that sits on the apical side, GUKI2C. It is a receptor that when triggered by its ligands, you see the ligands here, the GUKAS will create cyclic GMP. And cyclic GMP, like cyclic AMP, will actually open the CFTR channel. This is how... Um, heat-stable enterotoxin from E. coli causes a massive diarrhea. It presumably binds to GUCA2C to and then uh, through cyclic GMP opens the CFTR channel. So, so cholera uh, causes diarrhea th- through the use of CFTR, the activation of CFTR. But also this heat-stable enterotoxin uh, E. coli will do the exact same thing, albeit by a slightly different mechanism. So do we have best four cells in the organoids? So can we actually do experiments on these cells rather than look at mRNA uh, the signatures and, and predict what they do? It turns out they are there. Uh, what uh, Dai Zong did, he knocked in TD tomato, red fluorescent protein, into one of these marker genes of this novel cell type, CA7. And indeed, lo and behold, they are there, they're red cells. And we now, when we now stain the same organoids, uh, for the best 4 protein. So this is a knock-in done with CRISPR. This is staining afterwards, and indeed everything that is red here is, a, is best BAS4 positive. So we believe that this is a really a good indicator organoid line. On facts, we can see them, they're pretty rare. It's 1.4% in the steady state of these organoids. So we've actually learned that the intestinal epithelium is, is pretty active in terms of uh, of immune responses or controlling immune responses. And, and many of the interleukins, now that we can study them in vitro, actually do stuff on the uh, intestinal, directly on the intestinal epithelial cells. So that Dyson then asked, can we actually... Increase the numbers of these best four cells with with a, a large number. You see some of them here of these uh, cytokines or chemokines, et etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it turns out that gamma interferon is a very potent activator of increasing best four cell numbers. So this is again the same reporter that you see here. And gamma interferon is known in the gut to be to be strongly upregulated during bacterial infections. This, is, this visualizes the same experiment. So this is a standard organoid human small intestine. You see in red that there are some best 4 cells. If we, however, now expose this organoid to gametopherin, you see a massive increase in BEST 4 cells. So we can really manipulate the system now. We can actually create a system where we have many of these functional cells. I should say by single cell sequencing, they are identical to the signature you get out of the primary intestinal epithelium. So then Dyson wanted to create an identical organoid derived from the cell line he was using, but that would be identical in any other way, but would not have um, best four cells as a negative control. Turns out that when he knocked out the SPI-B transcription factor unique to the best four cells, he totally loses the best four cells here. So we, now we have a line that has them, that we can induce more of them with interferon, and we have a control line that's in any other means is the same, but doesn't have best four cells. Yeah. <laughs> So then he actually uh, wanted to perform this uh, this cystic fibrosis functional test, so the, the swelling assay I just showed, um, and he focused on two things. First of all, he focused on the fact that cholera toxin opens the CFTR channel and would lead to uh, swelling. Indeed, I don't show this here, but cholera toxin cannot, when we when we have no best four cells in our organoids, there is no swelling. And also when we now uh, try to trigger Guga2C, so the receptor for this uh Uh, heat-stable enterotoxin from E. coli, Uh, indeed. And I'll show you that we can trigger the the receptor here, but if there are no best 4 cells, the prediction would be that we cannot cause uh, diarrhea. And that's exactly what he sees. So this is the same test that I just showed you in a slightly different version. These are wild-type organoids that do have the best 4 cells. We add this, you see it here, the heat-stable enterotoxin from E. coli, and there's a rapid swelling. This is actually the, the loop runs over one hour we then expose the very same organoid line where spy b has been knocked out and there's no BAS4 cells. Otherwise, they're identical. This swelling assay is totally lost. So how do we interpret all of this? We think that BAS4 cells have a key role in fighting bacterial infections. We showed it for cholera toxin. I show it here for for E. coli. What it does, it senses the presence of of, uh, gram negatives in particular. It'll then produce a massive outflow of water, and this, this results in a watery diarrhea, and this presumably then helps to flush out the gut and remove as much of these bacteria, of these pathogenic bacteria, as possible. And on top of that, so when that is not good enough, the gamma interferon is, meanwhile, produced by T cells, will in further increase the best four-cell numbers and will further increase the watery diarrhea that's produced in the small intestine of patients. So we think this is at least one of possibly more functions of this novel cell type, and why I show this here, I think it, it illustrates that, uh, the story illustrates that organoids can help you understand functions of cells that you could not otherwise study in the lab. And there are no cell types, no cell lines, and where there are no animal models, human organoids can, can uh, come to the rescue. And then my second story, I hope I, I stay within time, uh, has to do with the liver. The liver has two Essential liver cell types: the hepatocytes, the cholangiocytes. Liver is also the most regenerative organ of the human body. Cholangiocytes or bile duct cells are very easily grown as organoids, it was shown in my lab by Miri actually in 2015, not in 2025. Hepatocytes, very important. I see this now at Roche as well for drug development and for all for, for metabolic studies, etc., etc. cetera, et cetera. have really resisted long-time culture for a long for a long time. But really, in the lab came up with a protocol where we could take a single hepatocyte, put it in culture, and you can see they make this beautiful organ. This is a mouse. This is now human, very large cells, large nuclei. You see the production of massive amounts of, in this case, alpha-1 antitrypsin, an abundant serum protein. They make albumin. They make all of the uh, cytochromes. And by all means, as far as we can tell, what we are growing here are real hepatocytes. The big difference is that we can actually grow them for many, many months. We have lines now that grow for years. We can subclone them, but they will always look like these beautiful hepatocytes, large nuclei, big nuclei. But you'll see, dividing cell in these organoids. Even more so, they make structures. They make these bile canaliculi. So the hepatocytes produce bile acid and normally secrete it into bile canaliculi. You see that here, we stain for the bile acid transporter, MRB2. And uh, it looks like, and it's better to see here, when we grow. So this is a knock in in the bile acid transporter, green. So we see where the bile canaliculi are. When you have one cell, there is no apical domain. But as soon as an apical domain is formed, the bile acid transporter goes there. And then when you get, eventually you get a real organoid, you can see that every parasite on this apical domain is attached to this bile canaliculus. It secretes massive amounts of bile acids in the canaliculi. And eventually in a real liver, this would flow to a bile duct and would then leave the liver. But we don't have bile ducts in these organoids. The other secreted products like albumin, alpha-1 and will actually not be not secreted to the apical domain, to sort of the bile system, but it will be secreted to the outside, to the basal domain. And you'll find a lot of albumin, for instance, in the medium of these Organized. They can be transplanted. Um, this is now in a in a mouse liver. The human hepatocytes are red, and actually, uh, were done by Eber Young in New York. Uh, actually, from a single hepatocyte, we grew a large batch of hepatocytes. Eber transplanted them, and this is a few months after transplantation. And these islets of human hepatocytes keep on growing inside the uh, the mouse the mouse liver here. Now finally can we use this to model human disease much like i just showed you cancer or uh, or or bacterial infections that turns out to be uh, to be the case so this this disease steatosis very common in uh, in adult uh, people in the US or in in Europe up to 25% will have a, a fatty liver so steatosis Typically, it doesn't get diagnosed because the real trouble starts later in this process uh, when inflammation occurs, fibrosis occurs, and eventually, even liver. So, so the, the liver function is lost, and eventually, even liver cancer can happen. There are currently no approved drugs. It's extremely common, and it's, of course, directly related to the excessive calorie uptake in the, in the Western world, and it's closely related to diabetes and obesity and, and similar diseases. No good in vitro models so far. So uh, Delila Hendricks set out, this was published very recently, uh, if you want to read up on this. So she set out if you could use these hepatocyte organoids to model the disease. Normally, they they don't accumulate lipids. They synthesize lipids, but they secrete them uh, in the form of these LDL particles. If we knock out an essential protein in LDL particles, APOB, it's also a rare genetic human disease. That's what we try to model here. We now see massive amounts of lipid particles. And So they they do synthesize lipids. There's actually no lipids in the medium, no fatty acids in the medium. They, They synthesize them from glucose. And then when they can't secrete them, they just simply accumulate them. They, for some reason, don't really care so much, and they happily grow, which is nice for us. We can also model the disease by uh, by taking normal hepatocyte organoids and just giving them excessive free fatty acids in the medium. So now they basically take it up, synthesize from these free fatty acids, triglycerides, and you can see they, they again get accumulated. So this would be a model for excessive calorie uptake based development of liver steatosis. There's a lot of genetic studies have been done on, uh, on MASH, as it's now called, uh, NAFLD. Uh, many, many risk genes have been found, but often it's not only exactly what the, lift, what the, risk, the risk gene does. So is a risk allele uh, actually helping or or um, endangering the patient? One of these is, is the, one of the most frequently found hit is PNPLA3, a gene of relatively unknown function. So what Lila did is she took a an organoid from a line that did not have the I148M uh, risk SNP. Um, so it has two wild-type alleles. Then uh, she, by base editing, she actually by prime editing in this case, she created a single allele or two alleles where the I was replaced by a methionine here, and she created a null. Now, when she created a null allele by by disrupting the gene with CRISPR, you can see steatosis results at least in this in vitro model. And when you create these risk alleles, particularly in the homozygous state, you can also start seeing the 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 uh, modest but clearly present. Uh, accumulation of lipids. So we would argue that PNPLA3 is a gene you would like to activate to protect to protect, to protect the patient. You would not like to block it. Having said that, you can actually find in literature that that several uh, pharma companies are currently developing inhibitors of PNPLA3 in the hopes that this would help patients with steatosis. We would argue if you actually inhibit PNPLA3, we do this by a knockout, you, you actually will get the patient into trouble. We have to see how these trials will come out, uh, and that will happen, and we'll see that in the next few years. We also uh, got a lot of um, uh, drugs in development. So as I said, there are no approved drugs of many attempts, some aim to block this the fibrosis. We, they will not score in this assay. There's quite a few that instance block uh, triglyceride synthesis. ACC is one, dgat 2 is one. You see some of these drugs work well. Others do nothing, at least in these assays. And again, we'll be curious to see if these, uh, if any of these will will score in the clinical trials. This is my final slide. So here you see uh, so from the previous study, we would predict that a combination of DGAT1 inhibitor and DGAT2 inhibitor, these are closely related enzymes that, that that perform a key step in triglyceride synthesis. Um, when the organoids are dark, and I'll play the movie again. So when the organoids are dark, they are full of lipids. You see the droplets here in this phase contrast. So we add the inhibitors over about three or four days. Apparently, the 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 hepatocytes burn up the lipids, and they slowly clear um, the lipids away from the intracellular spaces. And at the same time, we see that the organs keep on growing. So our conclusion is from this fairly simple experiment, these two inhibitors, first of all, they help uh, getting a bit of steatosis of lipid accumulation, but they also are not toxic at least for the liver because they allow the livers to happily grow. After we have some other inhibitors that also clear the organoids, but it's clearly not so healthy because they stop growing and then often in the many cases we also see a lot of apoptosis. So, so to to end my second story, what we think is this might represent a model for human steatosis where there is no good animal model, there's also no good in vitro model so far, which might help actually to come up with uh, with treatments for this, uh, this very common and also very uh, threatening disease. And with that, uh, I, I guess I named the people during my talk. I'd like to thank you very much for attention. I hope I left some time for Q&A. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hans, Dr. Clivers, for this um, amazing talk. We have some questions from the audience. I don't know where the Mics are over there? Okay. So, yeah, the, the, the first one is over there. Uh, great talk. Thanks very much. Uh, Jeff Lomax, CIRM. I, the, on the gut, loom, the, the, the mini gut, what do we call the gut organoids, sorry, the first story, I mean, a very exciting opportunity to really build something up in a personalized medicine way, the example you gave. The question really is how... How close is that, or what's the potential for the automation of, the, of that process, and you know, how close are we to standard diagnostics using those tools? Yeah, well, that, is, that is so <laughs> I've actually now that I'm a Roche, Roche being a very large diagnostics company as well, one of the largest in the world, we've had lots of discussions around this. But let me first say that for, for cystic fibrosis in, in Holland and also now some other con- uh, countries, essentially all patients that did not have access to the Vertex drug, which is about half, because the Vertex drug or Combi is, 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 has been in trials and is approved for Delta 508 patients, homozygous Delta-5-8 patients, but the other, the other half is a wide array of different mutations. Um, there was no uh, uh, approval for for this patient group, so uh, insurance companies typically would not reimburse, and actually we've made a biobank of all non-Delta-5-8 patients in Holland, about 600, Virtually all of them have, have been screened, and uh, we uh, we have several dozen patients that actually were found to be responsive in organoids. And black and white, what we hear back from the clinic, they always respond to the drug, and it's reimbursed in Holland. So there's actually now there's there's a third generation drug from uh, from Vertex that no longer makes it very uh, very um, important because now I think they treat. Positively, about 95% of the patients. But that was that was done by hand in the lab. Of course, there's not a great hurry in cystic fibrosis, and also the numbers are pretty low. If you think about cancer and so forth for Holland we would have 150,000 new cancer patients every year, a country of 70 million people. So th- there the assay is, is too, too expensive, it's too slow, it would take multiple weeks, and also you need highly trained personnel. So there are companies that are with microfluidics, in particular, try to bring down the volumes and uh, the, the increase the, the, the standardization and the reproducibility. I'm actually a, founder of, a co-founder of one of these companies. So as you list, but I can, I can state that actually it is now possible with these machines, also other companies have set this up in a matter of about seven to eight days to go from a small biopsy to a reliable re- readout on a limited number of say, 20, 30 different work combinations. And that's probably what in practice we would need. And this would be this is a machine that basically fits in standard diagnostics lab and can run by a typical diagnostics uh, technician. The big challenge relative to, to to CF is that for CF there was no other drug for these patients, so they could they either got or can't be or nothing. So we could immediately, when we predicted something, the doctors were taking the risk give it to patients, and and that validated the SE immediately. Of course, for, for most cancer types, we just heard examples uh, uh, today. Uh, there are many uh, good, if not very good treatments. You cannot just go in and say, I now have a new uh, diagnostic tool. Forget about no pathology or DNA sequencing. This is much better. So this will take a lot of validation, and then reimbursement will be, will be uh, very important. I see how important it is for companies to develop, to develop my sense from what I've seen is is actually the, the, the reproducibility between labs is high, the predictive value is high, and so my sense is there will be there will be space for this, but it might take multiple years before this is embraced by the entire health healthcare industry. Very yeah, exciting, one, thank, more thank you. Question. Yeah, as usual, that was a spectacular talk. I don't know if you can see me. Thanks, Hans. I really appreciate it. I see somebody somebody waving. That's Uh, me. You You always see the back of my head at these things, Uh, which is better. Uh, The best four cells, those are very interesting. I thought you were talking about the plus four cell at first because there was that whole debate. But the best four cells being interferon gamma responsive and uh, suggesting that we get immunity to enterotoxigenic E. coli that you show could actually introduce mutations and initiate malignancy as well. Does that mean if we're using JAK2 inhibitors that also inhibit interferon gamma signaling, we could reduce our gut immunity? Did I interpret that correctly? Yeah, so the prediction would be that if gamma interferon signaling, we haven't tried it, it's actually a good experiment. If you block gamma interferon signaling, you will not see the increase in, in these cells, yeah. and you will not get this massive diarrhea. Maybe it's also a nice treatment if you don't want to dehydrate patients by yeah, their diarrhea. Yeah, just but that would be a prediction, yeah. Okay, sure. great, thanks. Uh, one, uh, one important component of the gut is the microbiome, and I was wondering... Uh, how can we combine that with the gut uh, uh, organoids uh, in a productive way? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so there are actually multiple studies already. We, we, we try to always work in very simple studies. So, so uh, Kat was just referring to a study that we published a few years ago where we asked that a particular strain of E. coli called PKS E. coli, which is quite, you know, it's quite frequent, about 20% of people carry this particular E. coli in their gut, it was known to be genotoxic, secretes a small molecule that interacts with DNA. And we actually, in organoids, we basically injected them in organoids and showed that they, they produce a very specific mutational signature. Um, that then was also picked up in cancer patients. So it looks like about 10% of uh, of cancer patients have massive amount, massive numbers of mutations that appear to be caused by this particular E. coli. That's pretty common. So, but that is not the entire microbiome. There was a single E. coli that we co- could co-culture inside organoids. So there's also labs who are are interested in of course in the entire the complex microbiome or, or at least complex communities that can be propagated uh, in in labs and so there the, the the main developments have been that organoids after they have been grown in 3d they can only essentially be expanded in three D for long term, but when you have enough of the cells you can plate them out in a trans well. And there's now some beautiful papers where then in ALI uh, cultures where you would have an upper compartment and a lower compartment where the upper compartment would be anoxic. That's where they, the most of the microbiome likes to live. And then the apical so the, the, the microbiome sits on top of the apical domain and you have access to the basal domain of the or from the bottom of the trans well. And so this is this is now I think very exciting because you know you can now study the effects of you no, know, the the, me, the metabolites produced by, by the bacteria in the gut on uh, the gut epithelium, vice versa. You can add immune cells below the epithelium and see how that affects the epithelium, but also the microbiome, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is in development. I, I must say we, we don't build these very complex uh, engineered systems, but but if you, yeah you can look them up, they, they they look like they're really going to be very very useful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think we have a... No, we don't have time for questions anymore. I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, but one wint, right? No, wind. It has to be one one last one. One more question, please. Hi, Hans Clavers. This is um, Carl Willard. Um, I want to see if there's any parallels here between um, intestinal organoids and liver organoids. You can pinpoint the intestinal stem cell uh, very well, but can you do the same for the liver organoid? Is there a liver stem cell? No, so, so my, I, th- I think there's consensus in the field now. So, so my view has become over the years that, that this classical hematopoietic system with a professional stem cell uh, that is unique, and if you remove it, you, that's the end of your tissue, doesn't hold in many other tissues. Like in the gut, we have really dedicated stem cells, but if you kill them, many other cells will take over their role that normally they would never do. So there's a lot more plasticity in solid organs than the hematopoietic system. The liver is the other extreme problem the most regenerative organ of the human body in the mouse body if a surgeon removes two-thirds of the liver because of colorectal cancer metastasis for instance the liver grows back in a matter of weeks and this is not done by a classical stem cell what you would call a classical stem cell it's essentially the hepatocytes that go that that as fully differentiated cells start dividing which is what we exploit in our organoid uh, culture condition I would say so um So there is a stem cell function in the liver, actually two different ones, but it is not driven by a professional stem cell that you can point at. It's driven by the fully differentiated cells. One is the hepatocyte. I just mentioned the other is the cholangicide, which can actually revert into a stem cell-like state called an oval cell and then rebuild the liver. And But I would say I think every organ will have its own strategy to deal with the normal wear and tear and to deal with with the sort of pathological loss of tissue. Thank you so much, um, Hans, for being with us today for this outstanding talk. Thank you so much.